welcome to the Lover's Hole. You're with Mike. And Ian. And we are rereading the Aubrey Matron books of our favorite novelist, Patrick O'Brien. We have got one of our favorite tasks this week. We pulled down a brand new O'Brien book in this circumnavigation, and we're about to start us off. But Ian, would you be so kind as to tell us where we left off, where we're headed, and give us a little bit of a context for, for this book? Mike, it would be my pleasure. Let's get started. Here we are. Last week, we rounded off the 13-gun salute with the crew making multiple heroic, unsuccessful efforts to free their frigate, the Diane, from the rocks that she had grounded on. And they had to wait for the next spring tide. Envoy Fox, the person that they'd been carrying along on his whole mission, had taken his suite, except for his one aide, Mr. Edwards, away to Batavia on Jack's pinnace. Meanwhile, Welby, the marine officer, had built an excellent camp ashore that was there ready while they were going to lighten ship and repair. But it turned out that that also had to stand double duty to withstand the typhoon. The typhoon that, as it turned out, wrecked the Diane, wrecked the pinnace, and some of the things ashore, most importantly, the gunpowder tent. They had planned to use timber from the Diane's starboard bow and hull that they had found uh, washed up ashore to build a new boat to take them to Batavia. And that was pretty much where we left it, Mike. So now we, here we are at the beginning of The Nutmeg of Consolation, a beautiful book title. We're going to remind ourselves later on where it comes from. Then The Nutmeg of Consolation, as the book opens, the Dianes are working hard to build their new boat. They're going to take time out for a cricket match. Supplies are going to be running threateningly low. Stephen's going to find a new job. The Swallows, it turns out, are all going to be untrue. And the Visiting Malays, inscrutable. We're going to be pointed back in time to O'Brien's early naval novels, the one that preceded Aubrey and Maturin. And Mike, we're wishing along with Jack that we can avoid St. Famine's Day. So here we are. I, I just want to turn back to the shipwreck for a second, if that's okay. We all remember yeah. at the close of the last book, wrecked on this reef, this sounded like a, a, a classic O'Brien shipwreck moment. And I have realized as I've dug back through some of the resources, including, by the way, digging back into Dean King's biography about Patrick O'Brien, that even though it's not Cochrane, this grounding episode, albeit a little bit shifted in time, comes from something that happened in real life. And it's interesting because it points us a little bit in the direction that we're going to be going in the opening chapters of this book. It turns out that a vessel called the Alceste under the command of one Captain Murray Maxwell, had left England in February 1816, so a couple of years after us in the timeline, carrying uh, a Lord Amherst and his embassy to China. Amherst was headed to China to present a list of grievances that English subjects had been subject to under the rule of the Emperor of China. Amherst wasn't going to be allowed to meet with the Emperor, but also was refusing to kowtow to him. This mission, which obviously has got some parallels with Fox's mission to the Sultanate of Pulau Prabang, this mission had failed. So an opposite outcome to what we had in the previous book. The Alceste then had carried Lord Amherst, this envoy, away only to wreck, get this, on an uncharted reef in the Straits of Gaspar off Sumatra, really not a million miles away from where we think that we've, uh, we've had this grounding incident here. The event is described in a book entitled Narrative of a Voyage in His Majesty's Late Ship Alceste. This book was written by the ship's surgeon. Surgeons get around, don't they? They're learned chaps. And it's written about in the ship's log, which is held by the public record office in London. It looks very likely, says Dean King, that O'Brien had read one or both of those sets of sources. After the ship was wrecked, the real-life Alceste Lord Amherst and his delegation were put on board the ship's barge and had set sail for Java. Again, close parallels wow. with what had happened with Envoy Fox. Now, what happened to Amherst and his crew and what happened to Maxwell and the remains of the ship has some connection to what's coming up in the first couple of chapters of the book, so we'll say no more to avoid spoilers. But here we are, Mike. No big surprises. Patrick O'Brien's put us in a situation with close, close parallels to the real world. But bring us back to Patrick O'Brien. Bring us back to where the Dianes were. What was going on then as we open chapter one of Nutmeg of Consolation? 
be delighted. We, we open it up. It's Sunday afternoon. We find out there are 157 surviving Dianes and the one civilian, Edwards, as you said, who had been Fox's secretary. And, and they're there, but they sound like a much bigger crowd than that because there's a cricket game underway. You know, the Navy is playing cricket against the Marines under Welby. So there's, you know, we hear that there's lots of strong passions. There's catcalls, hooting and roaring. And O'Brien writes, yet another example of the seaman's power of living intensely in the presence with little or no regard for futurity, a feckless attitude, but one combined with uncommon fortitude, mm-hmm. since the atmosphere was as wet as a living sponge, and from behind its clouds, the sun was sending down a most oppressive heat. So one yeah. of these great O'Brien sentences here with this, you know, for me, I love this mindfulness reminder, this, you know, sense of living in the presence. I love this feckless and fortitude and futurity, futurity, and as you pointed out, you know, Great engram hit, you know, peaking at 1801 and then tailing off. Again, just perfect period language, perfect uh, observation of us mere mortals living here on Earth and a great way to open the book here. It it is, isn't it? And it's another one of these little hark backs to episodes that we've had in the past. By no means the first time we've had cricket. Some of you will remember that there was cricket being played on the Galapagos in the Peter Weir movie as well. This is a little scene that O'Brien likes to come back to. He also likes to come back to the humor of the fact that Stephen couldn't give two hoots about cricket. He would be there potentially as an impartial observer, but as we learn, he regards cricket as the most tedious occupation known to man. Poor unenlightened soul. So he's away <laughs> on the on the other side of the island hunting for boar, B-O-A-R, as opposed to B-O-R-E. Um, since everyone prefers these wild boar type animals to ring-tailed apes, we're going to find out some more about just how his hunting's been going. He looks back to the south side inlet, looking back at the new schooner that the crew is building just over under the lee of the forest. He reflects on the fact that they had just survived the typhoon that had killed so many of the crew. He reflects on how there's now white water covering the reef, which at springtide had been completely submerged. They've lost almost all of their powder. They've lost their livestock, which is one of the reasons why Maturin's out hunting. And a rational mind might think, he reflects, that with so much to do on the boat, with so few stores left, with the island's resources so nearly exhausted, that it might be folly to play cricket. And even though Stephen has no time at all for personal indulgence in the game of cricket, he can see what Jack's doing. And Mike, this is taking us back to Jack Aubrey as the benign and insightful leader here. He wants to reward the men who've been working hard. He wants even to reward the third or so of the crew who are really not that great seamen, who are kind of um, argumentative. He uses this term sea lawyers, referring to people who like to, to chirp on about their rights, some king's hard bargains, some nasty types who've been impressed. These, even these have been working double tides and he wants to reward them with this game that they've all been looking forward to. And O'Brien in the text compares cricket with what he calls the higher ceremonies, like divisions and reading the articles of war. And he he seems to admire on our behalf the fact that Jack is using them to impose a little bit of social order on what might be chaos here. Right. Stephen, you know, as much as he understands what Jack's doing, he didn't realize how much Jack himself loves cricket. And how important it was now with Jack's worrying about these shortages of food, shortages of marine stores like cordage and powder that you mentioned, Ian, and the soon-to-be absence of alcohol and tobacco. This is heavily Mm. on Jack's mind. Now, Jack, however, while this is all in his mind, at the moment, none of that's on his mind. He's focused on batting. He's stepping in, you know, he's got a and out in front of him, and he thinks, never mind maneuvers, go straight at him. You know, he's, he's kind of summoning up his hero Nelson's advice. And, and you know, sure enough, the, the, the bowler sends that ball in. Jack steps out, and before it lands, he smacks it right back at the bowler, who doesn't flinch, but catches it. And Edwards, as we said, the only civilian who's acting as umpire, says, out! And then looks at, at Jack and says, oh, <laughs> Out, sir, I am afraid. <laughs> you know, the soldiers roar, the sailors moan, and Jack, who's you know extremely well liked both as an officer and as an excellent batsman, 
says, well held, Sergeant. So he's complimenting the bowler here. So just, you know, it's exactly what we expect from Jack. We love that. And that Stephen, who's kind of taken a moment out to watch from on high, thinks, you know, I hope this is not an omen. <laughs> Jack out yeah. on his first uh, first ball. <laughs> the first fortnight, you know, as, as they're sort of, you know, working on building this boat, Stephen had really worked hard to try to help. But, he, you know, he's, he wore himself raw uh, with all his ropes that he was trying to work on tying with all the pulling and the sawing and the hammering. And, and none of it went well. <laughs> he just mm. is not very good at any of it. So, the, you, know, you know, I think everybody observed that the sailors were always having to keep one eye on their own work and one eye on Stephen so he wouldn't hurt himself or the work or any others. He actually you know, stuck the end of his pick through one guy's foot accidentally when they put him on the easiest job of trying to you know, dig some more well-like. So now he's found a new job. You know, they've kind of promoted him to be the hunter for everyone on the island. You know, I think they realized that you know, with very little powder or shot left, Stephen is, number one, the best shot on the island. He's a naturalist who's great at tracking and approaching silently upwind. And he has this incredible kind of lifelong ability to wait motionless for infinite periods of time to spot living things there. And, and this is really vital because O'Brien tells us that the game were already wary of being hunted. Apparently, people have been coming to this island for some time, even before the Dians landed there. So they were wary. And now after you know a week of, of Stephen going out and kind of hunting daily in, in this big feasting, you know, there, there are very few of them left on the island, and the ones mm. that are left are even more wary. Yeah, so provisions are tight. Stephen's out there trying to do his bit. It's interesting. We, we have this idea of there being one person around with the hunter mentality, with that kind of wariness. And we're presenting the, the the sailors as being, you know, a little bit in their own little world there. They're building the ship and they're playing cricket and they're not really paying attention to what's going on in the island. We might come back to that idea in a second. We're going to go back to being up close and personal first person with Stephen Maturin because he's on the trail of a large babirussa. Now, I've seen pictures of these and I look at these and I think, yeah, more, more or less wild boar. But it turns out that we can't 100% call it wild boar. In fact, it serves us not to call it a wild boar because we discovered that even the ship's Jews and Muslims would be willing to eat this thing. Looks outwardly actually as much like a deer as it does like swine. It has these horse-like upper tusks. It has long legs. And it's kind of a relief that the non-pork-eating members of the ship's company are going to be able to eat this with only, only a tiny twinge of conscience. He sits in a tree amongst orchids that he's never seen or heard of. This is beautiful, you know, passing reference to the, how he appreciates the, the orchids that he's sitting among. He's sitting at the end of the boar path and drops the animal with a single shot. Stephen goes into a real blank, cold, unsympathetic hunter mode here because he's, he's hunting for the pot. He puts on the apron that Killick had given him before he hangs it up on the light tackle that Bondon had given him. So... Stephen's not relying solely on his own resources here, but he's the one out there doing it. Uh, and he's going to use this tackle and the apron because he's going to have to gut this Barbarossa. It's a big one. It's um, 11 score, which I think is about 220 pounds. And Stephen's very delighted, not only with the fact that it's a big one, but also the fact that being a being a boar, he's he's allowed to think of the, 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 the porcine side of it because he knows that Jack Aubrey really loves soused hog's face. So it's enough of a pig for Jack Aubrey, but it's enough of a deer for the non-pork-eating uh, members of the crew. So everybody's going to be happy in their own way here. He hangs his apron on a branch so that uh, to be a signal for the men who are going to come and pick up this animal later on after he's gutted it. And forgetting himself, forgetting his, uh, his need for cleanliness, he wipes his hands on his jacket, stares at the white linen and sees all the blood and muck that he's just smeared all over himself. And we get this really nice regression of Stephen back into childhood mode. He remembers the nun who used to chide him about how cleanliness is next to godliness and how that's nothing, he thinks, compared to the lean, ageless, weather-beaten, pigtailed seaman with one gold earring and a shrewish, penetrating voice that he'll have to answer to. And of course, that's even though Ahmed and not Killick was his servant, he's going to have to face up to the wrath of Killick. Ah, well, 
you know, Stephen thinks, okay, you know, I, I'm going to try to wash this jacket out. Maybe, maybe that'll help. There's a pool right near the Swallows Cliff Cave. Um, and, and he does, but it does absolutely nothing. And then O'Brien writes, and with a cowardice unworthy of his age and education, he concealed the blood and the peritoneal fluid with a superimposed film of dirt from the water's edge, add, adding some algae for good measure. So Stephen's like, you know, like us, you know, okay, I, I got to hide this. I got to sweep it under the rug or I'm, I'm going to cover this thing over. And then Stephen walks over to this cliff. He's so close to it. And despite, you know, we know that he has this great dread, you know, about climbing up the ship's rigging and heights, he's able to lie flat on the rock with his head over the side because he wants so much to gaze into this kind of crevice, uh, the, the, the little crack that's opening up where these little gray birds are flying in and out of. Um, he leans further over still to kind of look in deeper. And as he leans further over, his wig, which Killick could just curled and whiten, falls down, just kind of tumbling over and over all the way down the cliffside. And and now Stephen is vexed. You know, he feels naked without his wig. He's also, I'm sure, thinking about, uh, you know, what Killick could have said about this and the linen coat. Uh, but he's delighted to see that when he kind of jumped out, you know, and reached to try to catch the wig, he now has a great view into this cave, this kind of, you know, crack in the in the side of the rock, and he's got a better view of the birds and their nests. These are the nests which we remember sell for their weight in silver. They're such a you know a, a wanted delicacy in Chinese medicine yeah. to make this you know this uh, bird's nest soup. Well, he kind of notices that the the birds look like they're just about you know the young are just about ready to leave, so these nests will soon be ready for harvest. But then. He's looking closer and he starts to frown. There's one really well-lit nest and he's noticing that the bird perched on the rim has four toes. And then he, he watches, he, he kind of sticks his head a little further into the cave and, and the birds are bringing in food. They're carrying off the, 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 the youngster's fecal sacs. And, you know, he's there staring at it intently for half an hour. And then the text says he, he walks off with a real... A displeasure, a look of real displeasure about these birds. And he says to himself, they are not swallows at all. And he says this, he's feeling indignant, and all of a sudden he's feeling deadly sick. You know, he's just nauseous, and he throws up in one bush, and then O'Brien writes, and the vomiting was succeeded by an imperative looseness. So he ducks into several more bushes. And, and I, I couldn't help but think, Ian, when I, when I read this, that, you know, I wish I had read it last Weekend. It was only a few days ago I had to prep for my my latest colonoscopy, and imperative <laughs> imperative looseness has such a fine ring to it. I mean, that would have been a much better way to describe the process there. <laughs> oh, good. Well, listen, if you can giggle about colonic prep, then I think you're in a good place in your life, Mike. I think that's good. Um, <laughs> O'Brien's really laying it on thick. If you'll forgive the uh, forgive the metaphor, he's really laying it on thick. We're getting all kinds of blood and guts here. We're getting peritoneal fluid, saliva in the nests, blood. Fecal sacs, you know, nutmeg of consolation sounded like such a harmless kind of lightly perfumed kind of sweet proposition. Now here we are in the first chapter and it's anything but. I I wonder, Mike, whether this chapter is going to hold more blood or more guts or a bit of both for us. We'll we'll have to see. Right, right. But it's funny, Mike, something odd is happening here to Stephen. And you you and I talked about it. We, We can't pin down a moment when what is about to happen actually was triggered. But from, from this moment onwards, Stephen's not feeling quite right. And right. to begin with, he ascribes this feeling not quite right to his disgruntlement at seeing that these swallows are not swallows at all, but they're swift. I, I think, strictly speaking, they are swiftlets, these bird nest soup swiftlets. And O'Brien tells us a little bit about Stephen's temperament. I think we knew this already, but we get reminded he's not really ill-natured, or, or jovial with a sunny temperament, he but he realizes that disturbances of this kind sometimes render him morose or even worse. And we're left with this kind of ambiguity. Is it the bad news and the grumpiness about the swallows that are making him feel sick, or is it the sickness that's making him feel grumpy? We can't really tell. But either way, he's overcome just about by this bad mood and he's feeling sick as well. By the time he gets to the camp, he's ready to savage Killick. 
and Killick knows him very well and can see this coming. He says, after one glance at his filthy jacket, his indecently bare head and the dangerous look in his pale eye, Killick silently fetched him a broad-brimmed senate hat and said, Captain has just woke up, sir. And Stephen's reflecting on his own changed mood and changed spirit here. He says, my indignation against those birds was quite excessive and speculating about why he might be feeling quite so out of sorts. He thinks, well, maybe it was because of the position I was laying in. Maybe I was putting pressure on my gallbladder and that was making me secrete too much bile. He fixes himself a draft of something. He lays flat for a while, feels a bit better and walks to his tent thinking, eh, quite excessive, meaning quite excessive, the, the indignation about the, the swallows slash swifts. Jack's not quick to pick up on Stephen's changed mood. He's actually, first off, he's delighted with the Barbarossa and the size of it and the, and the and the readiness and plentiness of it. He tells Jack that the soup swallows are not true swallows, but a dwarvish branch of Oriental Swift. Jack asks Stephen, well, what's in a name? He's, again, he's pretty focused on the, the roast pork, not so much on the bird's nest. As long as they make the right, well-tasting kind of nest, it would be all worn if they were called ostriches. Jack. Jack's got no, no appreciation of the finer side of uh, botany and zoology and naming stuff. Anyhow, Stephen is happy to hear that Jack had enjoyed bird's nest soup with raffles and says perhaps they'll have some in a few days when the young swifts have fled their nest. They might be able to lower a small midshipman down to collect half a dozen nests, which would be quite something, right? Stephen asks Jack, you know, who, who won the match? And Jack says, well, we all won. It was a draw. They had more runs than us, but they couldn't get fielding in the bosun out before the stumps were drawn. And he adds, with, with Edwards as a, as a neutral timekeeper, you know, everybody was happy. They couldn't say they'd been flogging the glass. So in Jack's estimation, they all triumphed. And, and I couldn't help but reading this, Ian. You, you've, you've been so kind to me over the years explaining cricket as we've been sitting in airport lounges <laughs> over, over a great draft. And, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm just the typical kind of American, not quite following. And, and I, I always wondered this whole thing about, wait, wait, you played for how many days and it's a draw? What? Yeah. What? So, you know, I, this is the first time I really came to appreciate Ah, there really is something, you know, to be had in a draw here. So my mental note to myself is to, you know, you and I watch some more games and let me pay a little more attention here. Oh, absolutely. And it's the summer right now as we're recording this, Mike. We've got the whole season of summer test cricket to come. England doing great against New Zealand. Three test victories over New Zealand. Who would have thought it? We've got India to come this summer, Australia next summer. It, it never ends, the joy of test cricket. It's certainly true, just a reminder, that cricket commentators talk about all four results and, and a draw is a special kind of result, not the same as a tie. Tie is different from a draw. Ties hardly ever happen. Draws happen right. all the time. That's when we just we just run out of innings and we run out of days and we run out of overs to bowl and we go, okay, that's fine. That was a great game. And as you say, Mike, it's certainly paid off for the crew here because everyone's a champion. Everyone's a winner here. Even though it's terribly hot, Jack thinks that this is going to be the outcome that's going to help men return to work the next day with a will, encouraged and refreshed. And he's pleased with the idea that the east wind might help to ventilate affairs as they're doing sawing in this otherwise hot and sticky weather. Stick a pin in what the east wind is going to bring, because we'll come back to that later. He really hopes that they can put to sea before St. Famine's Day. And again, stick a pin in St. Famine's Day because we might come back to it. Jack and Stephen walk past the well-laid-out camp. They walk past the single one of Jack's brass nine-pounders that got recovered from the wreck, along with the one round shot that's available for it, on their way to look at the work in progress on the schooner that's being built. Two lieutenants run up the hill, gasping to report that the midshipmen have found a turtle and hope the doctor can tell them the answer to every Internet O'Brien fan's favourite question, Mike, which is, can it be Ed? Can it be Ed? <laughs> it's funny. I, I, I looked at this and I thought, it can't be. This can't be the first time in the books that somebody has asked, can it be Ed? We, we've had questions in the past, Mike, in general, about whether beasts such as sharks can be eaten. But this, it turns out, right, is the first time anybody's actually asked the question, can it be Ed? First time I could find, for sure, right? Yeah. Well, if you think you found an earlier one than this one, let us know and uh, and we'll correct ourselves. 
Richardson thinks that this particular turtle, though, is looking a little bit strange, hence the question. Um, arriving at the beach, uh, Reed says in his high voice, would they like to see the turtle? He says, would you like to see my turtle? And Jack catches his ear on the on the personal pronoun here and asks, your turtle? And Reed sort of draws backwards a little bit, says, well, I saw him first. The others helped a little, alluding to Seymour and Bennett and the others who were around here. Richardson says he doesn't quite like the shape and the set of this turtle's mouth. And Stephen says, well, it's a true green turtle, probably 200 weight. It's a male, he points out. So his face is displeasing. So they, they look on some male anatomy and not very enchanted. Stick a pin in that. He says it would probably be rejected on the London market, but never served to an alderman. So all I want to know is, can it be yet? And he says, well, probably you could um, maybe give it to a midshipman. Give it to Mr. Reed first. It's his turtle, he says. Watch him for a few hours and see if he dies, which is a very <laughs> very pleasingly <laughs> pragmatic kind of enlightenment view that Stephen has of the potential toxicity of this uh, this green turtle. He's got some sympathy for the turtle. He knows it's going to get slaughtered, but he wants them to take its head off directly so that it doesn't suffer in the dryness and the heat. He recalls sponging water onto the eyes of sea turtles that had been held fast on the deck of a ship with a friend in the past to keep them from suffering. And Mike, we, we remember a little bit here about some of the thoughts that we've had in the past about cruelty to animals, right? Right. You know, it, it's funny because you know, in 13 Gun Salute, we kept seeming to go back and forth between are, are animals less cruel than men are? Certainly animals who've not been exposed to men, Stephen, at the monastery there in, in that kind of idyllic paradise here. And again, are they less cruel than men are to both men and to other animals? And, and I think this whole yeah. theme continues to play out in this book as well. Well, walking back to the boat, Jack says he almost made a joke about Stephen's cock and hen turtles, but it didn't quite take shape. <laughs> and Stephen says, you know, perhaps that's for the best. He says, you know, wit and facetiousness may be good in a lieutenant uh, on on a ship or or maybe in a commander amongst his peers. But he wonders if, and in, in O'Brien's words, a post captain who sets the quarterdeck in a roar conceivably lose some of his Jovian authority. And, you know, and then he asks, did Nelson crack jokes at all? Wow. And so, boy, you know, Stephen's put a pretty fine point on it here. Here's your hero. What do you think? And Jack says, well, you know, he's actually never heard Nelson crack a joke or heard of him cracking a joke, but, but he was always cheerful and smiling. And, and he said the way he had asked Jack to pass the salt was, was way better than wit. And Jack now reflects on this. And I think is sobered a little bit and says, well, you know, perhaps he'll save his jokes for Stephen and Sophie for now on. And then I, I love O'Brien writes, well, they walked along in silence, Stephen regretting his unkind words, his remorse much increased by the mildness of the response, you know, Jack's response. And he saw an unmistakable Philippine pelican overhead, but fearing that he might be even more of a bore with his birds than Jack with his punch clenches and set pieces, he did not point it out. Besides, his head was about to split. So... You know, we're, we're getting, you know, uh, not only this great reference to this relationship between these two, Stephen's self-awareness, but also, you know, the fact that, as you pointed out earlier, Stephen's still feeling pretty bad here. Something's really gotten to him here. Yeah, we've been a little bit distracted by this nice bit of banter backwards and forwards between him and Jack, but we're back to the point that he's he's pretty sick. He's got a splitting headache. We said earlier on that we'd mentioned this idea of St. Famine's Day. And Stephen asks, as he often does on behalf of us, the ignorant reader, what, what exactly is this St. Famine's Day thing? We, we have plenty to eat. We've got the babirussa, and there's still you know creatures that we can kill and cook on the island. We've got the turtle as well. Stephen holds him back from this kind of self-blaming and says, well, you know, you weren't to know that the ship was going to be lost and you were making sure that the boats plied back and forth as quickly as ever they could. And he says, yeah, but look at the things that we got off first. We got the envoys parties things off. Killick had used Stephen's skiff to bring silver ashore, the silver table service rather than food. And he's kind of regretting that now. There are no coconuts left. There are no good fish being caught. And they're already six upon four, which means six men sharing four rations. And the real killer, the real reason why he was worried about St. Famine's Day is that this phrase, St. Famine's Day, really refers to the fact that there's going to be 
no tobacco and no grog, something that the hands really care about. And distracting them with cricket is one thing, but compensating them for the absence of tobacco and alcohol is going to be something else altogether. And that is less than two weeks away. Now, I, I, I'm pretty sure we've heard of a reference to St. Famine's Day somewhere else in the canon, maybe not in one of the books that we've already read, but for the life of me, I, I can't pin it down. I, I, I think you said that there was Port Famine referred to coming up in this book. Right. We've been ashore in Desolation Island, and I don't think they mentioned St. Famine's Day then. So maybe it's all still to come here. Well, and, and it's interesting. It, I couldn't find any reference to this outside of this book. I mean, you know, in, in kind of a quick internet search. So I'm, I'm wondering if O'Brien made this up. I, one guy was writing a blog, but and he he uh, appears to have made up St. Famine's Day as well, talking about his conditions living in the in the frozen tundra of the north. But I, I'd be fascinated to know if our listeners know. I, I thought for sure this would be a common expression, you know, used by shipwrecked people or something like that, but I haven't been able to find it. Yeah, right. Well, one of the reasons I thought we might is is that clearly, you know, this, like you were saying, you know, to Jack is very serious business. Like, you know, okay, what happened? So Stephen says, well, you know, Jack, are you expecting a mutiny when, you know, when they hear that there's no more tobacco or alcohol? And, and Jack says, no, it's more muttering and discontent and ill will working slower, working more inefficiently. And he kind of expects, you know, you were going to start hearing some of the men say that the officers no longer have authority since they no longer have a ship. Uh, and so without a ship, they're, you know, they're not officers anymore or that the seamen's pay stops on the day of the wreck. So, you know, given that they're not paid, there's no need for obedience. The articles of war no longer apply. And Stephen says, well, are those true? And Jack says, no, 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 they aren't. And, and he says, as O'Brien writes, not since the loss of wager in Anson's day. And Ian, you, maybe you can come back and tell us, whoa, whoa, what's that now? But he adds that many of the hands may believe it anyways, since the service, as in Jack's word, has a shocking reputation where pay and pensions are concerned. Mm. Well, Mike, you rightly point out that this reference to Anson's day is something that's got not only is it historically correct, there was the, these voyages of, a, of a, a squadron exploring literally the far side of the world under Commodore Anson many years before. We're talking about 60, 70 years before the timeline that we're in here. So not only is that a real historical precedent, it's also come up in a couple of important places. One important place is that these shipwrecks and storms and disasters that these ships encountered back in Anson's day had been made reference to already when uh, we heard about Pullings's grandfather talking about the mutiny aboard the ship called the Wager. And in the world of Patrick O'Brien, those of you who are keen Patrick O'Brien scholars know that he actually wrote two books that came before the Aubrey Maturing canon. These two books, The Unknown Shore and The Golden Ocean, were kind of prequels to the Aubrey Maturin novels. There are characters in them that clearly have some parallels with Stephen Maturin and Jack Aubrey. Um, they're based absolutely on dispatches and real records of Commodore Anson's uh, fateful, you might say, ill-fated circumnavigation of the globe. Jack is referring specifically to what happened to the survivors who found themselves marooned on a desolate island in the middle of a Patagonian winter and the mutiny that followed amongst the ship's company of the wager. So that's a genuine bit of history. It's a genuine bit of foreboding as well about right. the authority that Jack's clinging onto here and what might happen if he loses it. Well, I'll tell you what, that gives me pause for thought in this whole, uh, uh oh, now, now we got the possibility of mutiny in our hands, maybe. I don't know about you, but I, I'd like to take a little bit of break, gather together what stores we have, get ourselves refreshed like the cricketeers, and then come back. Oh, amen to that. Let's take a short break, and we'll be right back. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. Well, welcome back after the break. I hope you found some provisions in your longboat to sup upon. I hope that your powder is slowly drying. Jack and Stephen, meanwhile, back in the chapter, I've walked along the strand and they've reached the boat. They've reached where the boat is pulled up on the shore there. Stephen is amazed to see the progress that they've made in the last few days. 
And Jack enters in on this long, technical, naval architecture description of the design and how it's being built and what the different pieces are. And Stephen, even with the best will in the world, might normally roll his eyes up at this kind of stuff, but he really can't sustain it when he's brewing the really nasty bug that he's brewing right now. He excuses himself, turns aside, and is extremely sick. And Mike, we've been in these situations before. I, I don't know quite how much jeopardy to assign to this. Stephen's sick. He's been really, really sick. We've, we've had people sick on deserted desert island shores as well. And we, we're left thinking, is this, you know, what does this mean for the crew? What does this mean for our ability to keep hunting? Jack, like us, is very disconcerted. He's used to the idea of the doctor being a little bit, if not immortal, then at least kind of bulletproof. He seems to have a perfect command of his health. He's been through Antarctic cold. He's been through equatorial heat. He's nursed an entire ship's company through jail fever and plague and smallpox. And he's standing there, as the text says, looking as pale as an ostrich egg. So Jack gently escorts Stephen back up the hill. They take a rest by the gunner who spread out quite a lot of the remaining powder to dry in the sun. It's not going to dry in the wet air. And we get back again to this idea of the promise of east wind. Jack expresses this hope that tomorrow's east wind is going to fill in and that'll be cooler, that'll be dry. And that will mean that our powder gets back into shape where we can actually use it. Makes us wonder, eh, Mike? Yeah, it really does. Well... Jack gets Stephen up to the tent and he sends for McMillan, you know, Stephen's you know, kind of surgeon's mate. And McMillan, you know, does the usual, checks his pulse and his tongue and his heart and everything. And he's, he's at a loss. And he says, well, you know, may, maybe we should use 20 drops of the alcoholic tincture of opium. And Stephen, who's been, you know, pretty subdued, is like, no, 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 no. We're not doing that. He remembers his past addiction. He remembers the effect it's had on his life. And he says, no, they're not going to do that. But he says, you know, surely you saw that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really building a fever here. So he has his own treatment plan in mind. Bark, steel, a saline enemata, rest, and above all, quiet. Uh, now, he says, of course, there's no quiet in a camp full of sailors. So he says, you know, when you bring everything else, bring me some wax so I can make balls from my ear. And, and we've you know, got this bark, steel, saline animata. And, and I'm thinking, well, well, wait a minute. Now, we've heard about some of these earlier. So Cinchona bark, Jack made a, a, a joke recently about Jesuits bark, one of the other names for this. You know, it's mm. a tree bark alkaloids uh when our gin and tonics this is this is where the tonic comes from here but it was also used as a pretty standard thing to lower fever we've discussed this before steel uh, a form of uh, diluted medicinal iron uh, called steel drops and the saline enemata enema well a saline solution enema uh, all of this yeah. according to dr matron's medicine it's uh you know, if, if you go to hmssurprise.org, you know, the Gunroom's website, there are a lot of links to Patrick O'Brien reference materials. You can go from there or you can access it directly uh, and we can put a link out to it on our socials. Uh, and, and we kind of special thanks to Carrie Webb and lots of Gunroom volunteers who put together every one of these medical references from the canon back in 2002. And they, in turn, you know, have a shout out to Anthony Gary Brown's uh, treatise, Persons, Animals, Ships, and Cannon in the Aubrey Matron Sea Novels of Patrick O'Brien. So, you know, I'm always amazed how many decades of great resources are amassed yeah. out there for us here. It's great, isn't it, to be to be reading through and to be able to, to benefit from all of this because it's the kind of work that you really sometimes want to dig into. So super, super appreciative of all of that. Macmillan, meanwhile, the surgeon's mate himself, brings the remedies and he brings the wax ball to put in Stephen's ears. Um, Stephen says he can feel the fever rising, which means he's carrying some kind of an infection. He says he's aware of some initial signs of delirium and my, a, a slight anxious pause here for me as I'm reading this, um, calls for three coca leaves to chew. Ab yeah, absolutely no opium to be had. Well, never mind. Hand me the cocaine. <laughs> right. <laughs> just when we thought he had all of his addiction behind him. But it turns out that this is going to be helpful to him. He chews them for some time and then remarks, 
that one of the miseries of medical life is that you know so many shocking things that can happen to the body and how little is known about them. You're denied faith, the faith that patients so often have. And you can't be relieved by placebos like a sugar pill. Another misery for medical men is how often they face enormous demands for sympathy, perhaps many, many distressing cases in a single day. And he comments on behalf of all physicians and surgeons about what that does to their characters. He says, those who are not saints are in danger of running out of funds and becoming bankrupt, a state which deprives them of a great deal of their humanity. So he's quite anxious on behalf of physicians who get sick. A private practice physician, he says, has to at least seem to do this to keep their business, but the patients on a ship have no choice. The surgeon does have a monopoly, so this need to be sort of superficially sympathetic is perhaps done away with on board a ship. The ship surgeon's inhumanity doesn't affect their livelihood. They can be as callous as they need to be. They get paid regardless. And Stephen believes that this creates, in, in the worst situations, what he calls many callous, idle, self-important, self-indulgent, hard-hearted, pragmatic brutes of surgeons in the Navy. Now, of course, Mike, you and I have never encountered any healthcare providers like this, have we? Especially not in the United States. No, no, no. Anyhow, Stephen is in good hands. He's got great help with Macmillan, with Ahmed sitting there, fanning him, giving him cool water all night as they gently rock his hammock. So in the morning, Macmillan tells Jack that Stephen's fever left as quickly as it came. And if Stephen were awake, he'd be amazed at how quiet the camp is. All the sailors tiptoed away with their breakfast as the stars were still out so they wouldn't disturb Stephen. And they only left behind those who are, you know, would make no noise with what they were doing, like the, the rope makers. Um, Stephen does wake later to this strange quiet. And when Macmillan and Ahmed are all fetching things for him, uh, you know, kind of looks around and he gets himself up and walks out to go use the bathroom. Now, the gunner who's drying his powder and, and hopes to be able to barrel it again in a few days and some of the others who are left behind are pretty upset that Stephen is not resting. And finally, when you know McMillan returns with soup, Stephen eats it and goes back to sleep. But he wakes later to the sound of very high-pitched Malayan voice. And he hears Killick saying, tell them there's plenty more in the other chest. And Ahmed translates, telling them how rich and important Captain Aubrey is Everyone but the high-pitched voice is quiet, not wanting to disturb Stephen, but the high pitch goes on. And, and he hears them answering questions about how much gunpowder they have, when it will be ready. And finally, Stephen, I think, can't stand this. He puts on a robe and he walks out and he finds out that this voice belongs to a slim, young, handsome Dayak woman with a tight skirt and a jacket that clearly was not intended to conceal her bosom. She has an ivory-handled crest, you know, this elaborate ceremonial and, and deadly knife we've read about before. And her second incisors are filed to a point, so she appears to have two pairs of dog teeth, giving her a vicious expression. And, and despite this expression, you know, we learned from O'Brien that the sailors and the Marines are all gathered around her, gazing like a herd of moon calves. And Ian, you and I were talking earlier. I think the last time we had sailors, specifically, it was Jack Aubrey, distracted by an Oriental bosom. It was in the fortune of war. Luckily, that time, you know, the only outcome was sort of comedy at Jack's expense. But, you know, I'm really wondering, what about this time? She really has everybody off their guard. Meanwhile, Stephen greets the woman and her Malay companion, and they speak and exchange greetings with Malay formal civility. Ahmed is on hand to explain. He explains that he'd found the party of seven and their small proa when he was searching in vain on the far west side of the island for coconuts. They had given him some coconuts. He brought them across the island on the middle path, right through the compound here, since the tide was too fierce for their proa to come around. Stephen, taking all this in, wonders aloud to himself how she had walked in this skirt. And with a bit of a blush, Ahmed says that she had taken the skirt off to walk. And everybody's starting to pay attention now to this woman and her companion. Stephen admires her. Chris notices its small handle, just nice the right size for her delicate hand. 
She asks him to hold out what she calls his honourable forearm and shaves off a patch of hair as bare and smooth as a barber. The gunner cries out, Tell her to do me! and steps forward, leaving the sailcloth as the much-hoped-for east wind kicks up and blows the irrecoverable, the precious gunpowder away as dust. And Mike, I've got my head in my hands at this moment. That terrible moment of bosom distraction on behalf of the crew. Men now apparently losing out the vital force to use their, um, their weapons, nudge, nudge, or because they'd caught sight of a pretty female chest. Patrick O'Brien, you old Puritan. And I, I almost get the feeling that Patrick O'Brien is, is kind of poking us in the eye a little bit to say, you know, we sometimes have not overcome our Neanderthal-like past. <laughs> We're victims to our biology. Well, Stephen asked Ahmed to bring coffee in a silver pot and a cushion for the lady and sends Killick to bring the captain as quickly as he can. Now, Killick does not want to leave his silver out, all the silver he has on display. And he asks Stephen to send Achilles instead, that Achilles is the fastest runner in the camp. And Stephen asks if Killick doesn't trust his shipmates. Killick says, well, he doesn't trust them or these strangers who've stared so wishfully at his soup terrines. All right. Well, as Stephen gets in there, he can tell that this woman whose voice he's heard, and, and now he realizes it, it you know, it, it, it's clearly this woman, that the voice that was bothering him earlier. She's in charge and she chats away with Stephen in a way that would have elicited a lot of information, except that Stephen, being an intelligence agent, is not inclined to share information. So, you know, he uh, he chats right away, but only tells her things that she already knows. Uh, when Jack arrives, Stephen introduces the captain and says to the guest that Jack doesn't speak Malay, so he asks forgiveness to speak with him in English. She says she's loved to hear English. She's heard that it sounds like birds. Stephen intervenes here to tell Jack to stop staring at the woman with such obvious sexual desire. He says it's uncivil and gives her the moral advantage. And, and by the way, it's already caused the, the distraction and the disaster of the powder being lost here. He asks Jack whether he, Stephen, should ask these people to carry a message to Batavia. It's, it's a smart move, right? He's saying, let's see if we can use these people to get ourselves out of the situation and expect that there's going to be a fee. And he says, if so, if they agree to this, what, Jack, is the message that they should carry? Jack says, first of all, in a slightly defensive kind of schoolboy tone, well, it was only a look of respectful admiration. Yeah, right. Um, drinks some coffee and says, yeah, please go ahead and ask them. With this, Wendy thinks they can be there in two days. And while Stephen starts to negotiate the basics of it all, he's reflecting on what the message might be. And Stephen asking the question realizes that this woman's mind is more spirited, more articulate than the mind of anybody he'd met in Pulu Prabang, except maybe for one Da, the money changer, whose mother was a Dayak. So we're picking up on the fact that this woman's part of a part of a tribe and a culture and an intellect that's really, really strong and really perceptive. He says to Jack, having translated back and forth, that everything depends on the fee. Her uncle, we learn, is an important man. He's the pro's skipper, and the rest of the crew wanted to be back to their home island for the Skull Festival. It would be a great sacrifice, she says, to miss this festival by sailing to Batavia. Clearly laying it on a bit thick, trying to highball them for the for their cost, right? They talked on and on, and Stephen finally tells Jack that he thinks they're about to reach an understanding, so could he, Jack, prepare a list of things that he needs raffles to send, assuming that Jack still has plans to use the new schooner since she's almost ready. Jack says, you know, you're quite right. Abandoning the schooner would fly in the face of Providence. So off he goes, starting out with his list of supplies, headed up by the things that are going to help him for St. Famine's Day, namely supplies, tobacco, alcohol, and gunpowder. And Mike, it turns out that the fee has been negotiated already to a pretty high level, right? It does. You know, Stephen says they've agreed on 20 Johans, and, and this is an actual currency, a Portuguese gold Johans coin issued from 1809 to 1839, 
referred, as Jack later calls it, as Joes by British colonists. So, you know, very, very real. Uh, Jack thinks that's way too much. And Stephen explains, well, it, you know, maybe a lot, but it's the smallest Xiaoyang note that I have left. And he doesn't want to lead the woman in temptation, he says. But then he sees this look in Jack's eye and says, you know, don't be witty now and offend this woman and her penetrating mind. And Jack calms down. Stephen continues. He doesn't want to lead her into temptation, uh, you know, and tempt her to run away if he gives her either gold coins themselves. He wants to use a note and he certainly doesn't want to use a larger note. Um, you know, because that's that's going to mess up the negotiations. And by using this, the smallest note he has, she will only get paid if she gives this note, presents it to Xiao Yen, along with Jack's list and Stephen countersigns Xiao Yen's note. Uh, she's already said that she recognizes the seal, Xiao Yen's seal on this note. So she understands how this works. Yeah, it's a very smart maneuver on Stephen's part as well to keep her kind of locked in he's already got some quite strong instincts that this woman is not only smart but might be out to get an advantage from this situation right Stephen reminds jack once again to keep his eyes with a with a modest look downwards that this lady who we learn is called kesegaran would like to see the schooner by the way mike the, the name kesegaran quickly looked it up in indonesian it means freshness or fitness which sounds like mm. Yeah, a good a good name for a person who's shown up with the with the outlook and the perspective that she has. Stephen says yes that since the wind's unfavorable for the proa, they can save an hour or two and be civil by sailing her down to the southern point. So they stand watching the cutter put out to sea, and it's quite it, it's it's a simultaneously humorous and also slightly scary, slightly intriguing prospect. Seymour doesn't have a uniform; he's in rags. Kesegaran herself hitches herself from the stern sheets to the windward gunnel, riding the seas, just like somebody hiking on a modern dinghy. She's really loving it. She's totally comfortable in an open boat on the seas here. And I'm sure Jack says he's never seen a woman take such an intelligent interest in shipbuilding. Nor, said Stephen, in the shipbuilder's tools. And Stephen's got a sharp eye for what's going on here. Both she and her companion fairly groaned with desire. They may have coveted your silver, and I'm sure they did, but that was a mere passing velleity compared with their yearning for Mr. Hadley's double-handed saws, adzers, jack screws, and many other bright steel objects that I cannot name. And Jack says that some of them round here sew their planks together, pointing out just how low the shipbuilding technology is, how primitive the technology is for the natives here. Stephen comes back to this use of the word vicious, saying that he didn't mean it, speaking about the Dayaks and Kesegaran in particular, he didn't mean it in a moral sense. He just meant potentially fierce and savage, certainly not to be trifled with. And Jack, who's perhaps remembering some of his encounters with, uh, with Pacific Island native people a couple of books ago, says, I cannot imagine any man trifling with Kesegaran who valued his, uh, that is to say, uh, who, who did not wish to end his days as a gelding. And Stephen further explains that he really meant vicious like an animal, like a minx or a marten cat that would be likely to attack or to defend itself with extreme ferocity. So Mike, what, what might have been a sort of benign trade with some friendly locals has turned into something that we're worried about here on a much deeper level. There's quite some threat going on. Yeah, I, I'm certainly feeling this all the way through here. Now, Jack, however, is is thinking a little bit differently. You know, Jack's standing there watching them head out, and he's asking Stephen, well, let's see, if the proa reaches Batavia by Wednesday afternoon, how long do you think it'll take him to reach Xiaoyan and, and then for Xiaoyan to reach Raffles? And Stephen says, well, you know, I don't know what feasts or holidays might be going on there, but uh, I think that Xiaoyan, you know, that... Xiaoyan could reach the governor in five minutes once they get there, and the governor could pick from many of the vessels at his command in another five minutes. Mm -hmm. And uh, so Jack's like, oh, great, you know, well, we can start watching for somebody on Sunday. And then Jack is just reveling in all this thoughts about, oh, my gosh, I'm going to have all the cordage and spikes and pots of paint, the powder, the shot, the rum and tobacco that I need. And Jack says, long live Sunday. 
Yeah. I mean, this 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 has got to be too good to be true. Chapter one of a Patrick O'Brien novel, and they're going to be supplied with all the hot desires in terms of powder shot, rum and tobacco. Come on, Jack. Come on, Jack. You know you're in chapter one. You know that's not okay. <laughs> Stephen repeats this phrase, long live Sunday, as he's going up the hill. And again, when he gets into his hammock, but he can't stop wondering what are these feelings of extreme dissatisfaction at the back of his mind. And Mike, this, this reminds me of uh, earlier in the chapter, Stephen was extremely dissatisfied to learn that the swallows are in fact swiftlets. And that was a little kind of, you know, niggle on the part of a careful naturalist. I think there's something more important here. Stephen's realizing that his spy senses have been tweaked in some way by the situation that they're in here on the island. And maybe he's even regretting the fact that he'd been indisposed for a while and perhaps wasn't, hadn't been really at 100% of his powers up to this point. He knows that as an intelligence agent, it's his natural inclination to be over-suspicious, but he can't help wondering why Kesegaran has asked Ahmed to bring them to the camp via the much harder middle path rather than on the beach. She clearly knows the island well. Going that way, we learned, means that she saw the camp's nakedness, the relatively paltry state of their defences and the paltry state of their armaments and their supplies. She had learned that way that they had almost no powder and she had been around in person when distracted by their state of her body, they let some powder get blown away. It's not all clean cut in Stephen's mind, though. He says, to finish off the chapter, he says, but on the other hand, down by the slip, she had seen a hundred powerful men and more, no negligible force at all. And the fact of having one second incisors filed to a point, no doubt a tribal custom, did not necessarily argue any very great depravity of mind. End of chapter one. Right. <sighs> Mike, here, here we are, right, right in amongst it. Some new things unfolding for us here in chapter one. Yeah, there are. And, and, you know, not only new things unfolding, but, you know, I couldn't help but think to myself, wow, you know, O'Brien clearly had some of this story in mind when he was writing 13 Gun Salute because, he, you know, he left it so well set up. You know, the, they're, they're going to be short on supplies, short on powder, you know, this impact of the typhoon. Um, so, you know, he set us up. And then, you know, it, just the way O'Brien does, you know, we, we open with this wonderful cricket scene. We open with this simpatico between Jack and Stephen. And it just starts to build tension, you know, whether it's being upset with the birds, being sick, and then with the rest of it. That, that I, I just, I don't know. It, it might just be me, but as you were kind of saying, and as Stephen was rolling over his mind, there's just a little yeah. bit too much jeopardy hinted at with these strangers in the first chapter. Yeah, and Stephen's unsure about whether to treat them as potential allies and, 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 and smart, insightful people or whether to treat them as a threat. They're certainly pretty fierce. We, As you said, Mike, we heard about them in the last book as being fierce and capable fighters. O'Brien's kind of playing with our expectations and anticipations a bit here. I, I am noticing, though, that as we get out of the end of 13 Guns Salute, we haven't really got an enemy on the scene. We haven't got a rival. We haven't got what you might call a counter-protagonist. The, the, the French are, are out. The Sultan is now an ally with, yeah, with, the, with the ink fresh on the treaty there. Ray and Ledwood are banged up in a, in a zinc-lined casket. So we haven't got a local enemy anymore. And I kind of wonder about that as I reflect on the malaise and the situation that the men are in here. Um, Fox was a sort of rival to us for a while, but he's been drowned at sea. Are, are we just going to have the weather and the tides and nature as an adversary for Jack and Stephen, or is there going to be some other party on the scene here? No. And, and you know, remember just in the last chapter of 13 Gun Salute, you know, Stephen and Jack were saying, well, are these guys just merchants, you know, people going about making a living or are they pirates? And Jack says, well, it all depends on whatever the occasion may offer. And, and yeah. so, you know, I think we've just been through a chapter of watching them sum up. Well, what does this occasion offer for us here? Yeah. yeah. It's funny. It, it reminds me at the beginning of the last book, we were invited to speculate about whether Fox is going to be a goodie or a baddie. 
And Blimey. here at the end of the chapter of this book, we're invited to speculate about whether Kessigaran and the Dayaks are going to be goodies or baddies. Mike, yeah. th there's only one thing for it. I think we got to do it. What do you say next week, Ian, to a little bit more Patrick O'Brien? With all my heart. The Sultan is now an alloy, an alloy. <laughs> the Sultan is now an ally with <laughs> yeah with the, with the ink fresh on the treaty there. Ray and Ledward. Uh...